Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners, scholars, and riffraff to this week's edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, one of your illustrious hosts, and with me, probably knowing more about the ancient civilized world, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hey, I'll take the praise, but I don't know that that's true at this point in my life. Really, I would I would pick you as a history guy, like you would know about the Everything I know about ancient world, ancient world and history, I learned from Indiana Jones and Nathan Drake and Laura Croft. Okay, well, those are... Those are those are good good role models and mentors. Basically, every civilization take... has had zombies and some sort of mm-hmm. spiritual, yeah. unique, supernatural, yeah. iconic yeah. weapons or artifacts that have caused the downfall of them at a, some point in time. That's what okay. I've learned. Well, it's it's something good to learn. It was <laughs> it's about what I know too. So it, it's it, I feel a little bit better knowing that you don't know as much as I thought. So I'm slightly disappointed, but really more comforted than anything else. Good, so that's good. good. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we are discussing Alexander Payne's dramedy, The Holdovers, a film uh, that you, my friend, said was a must-watch based on your screening earlier this year. As most of you know, if Aaron recommends, I usually comply and agree upon watching. I think there's maybe been, I can probably count on one hand, the movies that he recommended that I was like, meh. But even those were okay. Was this one any different? Well, let's get into it, all right? This is your official spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about this in great detail. I will tell you, listeners, depending on where you live, this did get a wide release, but I think it was sort of a soft wide release. I was fully expecting it to be hitting my Regal Theater. It did not, so I had to go to a more quaint theater, as I would probably call it. Now, I will say in the defense of this theater... It had been several years since I'd been to it. It's actually gotten a lot better. So it feels more like um, Alamo Draft House, that kind of thing, where you can order food and you have like nice, like not Alamo Draft House, but like a, you know, one of those like sit and serve kind of things. So you can order beer and you can order, you know, meals and stuff like that. I did not partake, but it wasn't as bad of an experience as I thought. Although, and I don't know if you can verify this, Aaron, but my screening was in four by three. It was not 16 by nine. This is really interesting. So I think was that... Was that what yeah, you your theater is not well? broken. It's intentional. <laughs> it's okay. Okay, just making sure. Just, I, I I didn't want to just like the film grain style and the yeah the credits and the way that the font is uh, on the title uh, and all uh, of it is I think intentional to for a throwback era. I mean, we're, we're really going okay. for that seventies aesthetic. Just making yep. just making sure that I didn't get cheated when I like, out of you know a foot and a half's worth of screen when I, when I was enjoying this, but it was good. It was good. It was a good experience. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about general takeaways from the film for you, because we haven't really talked about it since then, since you screened it and then it came up. What made it worth recommending to you? And and I'll kind of give my thoughts after that. Well, I mean, I, I just was bowled over by this film. I have a Almost was going to say love-hate relationship with Alexander Payne, but the reality is I've loved The Descendants and I pretty much hated Downsizing. I don't know if it's seen sideways, so it's not quite that 
powerful of an emotional attachment to him either way. But I had a sour taste in my mouth from his last film, and I was not looking forward to this in any particular way. In fact, it wasn't on my schedule at TIFF, Patrick. It was a leftover movie where it was like, oh, I'm going to go to that one if I can get to it, you know, and I happened to move some things around one morning because something wasn't getting good buzz and ended up seeing this, and it was like, whoa, and it was just one of those rare films that completely shook me in a way that I, I knew when I walked out, it was like, well, that's that's one of my favorite films of the year. It's a five-star film for me. There's no question about it. I didn't have any doubts. And I think that the reason is mostly because of just the dynamic of characters. I really enjoy what I consider to be fairly realistic characters and when their issues or their problems to be solved aren't something that is beyond the scope of my own personal relatability and understanding. And, yeah, you know, much like a Dead Poets Society or, I don't know, maybe kind of like a Goodwill Hunting, but there's, there's movies, there's parts of movies in there that we have always loved. These movies about students and teachers and their coming-of-age stories about Young men, and, and I, that's part of why I can relate more to it, you know, growing up and going through their struggles. And, you know, you put on top of that a completely just a pitch perfect snappy script, in my opinion, which is something that I personally am drawn to in a movie more than maybe some other elements as well. And their performances are all phenomenal. I think that the main trio here that carry the film, Divine Joy Randolph, Paul Giamatti, and this, like, Dominique Sessa, who is, like, a revelation. They found him at the school they were filming at. I mean, this is, like, a complete accident that this guy got wow. cast. He he was not some actor that we've known about. This is his first thing, really. And they just, they feel so natural to me, Patrick. I mean, I, I okay. truly believe these people could exist. And at the end of the day, when you get a movie about a person who grows and becomes changed themselves and then makes a sacrifice in order to better someone else's chances at life. I just, I really resonate with that. And it, and it leaves me with such a warm fuzzy and I guess a hope in a way that, that a lot of times just my daily intake of world news and relationships and people I see out in the in my everyday interactions doesn't always leave me with. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with any of that. I, I kind of had similar thoughts coming from it. Obviously movie takes place in high school. That's always going to get me at least one star in the review process for me. But that realistic character approach that you gravitated towards, I like the flawed character atmosphere. This idea that all three of these characters that we hang out with for a good chunk of the movie, all have their own issues. Some of them are at the surface, very much obvious, and how they're dealing with those things. Some of them are underneath, we find out later. And they all sort of gravitate towards one another to create this family-centric film that is accentuated by such a great script. I think Paul Giamatti is is fantastic in this, as Paul, Paul Hunnam, where he just, he's unlikable, 
for a reason at the very beginning, and he softens as the movie goes on, not just because you've spent time with him, but because you understand the why behind his what. And that's a, that's a great discovery for a good story, is to start out with a character who, or even all three of the characters, who you make assumptions about. Oh, yeah, Mary's dealing with grief, so she's going to be quiet. She's going to act this way. And then other things happen where you realize, oh, okay, so this goes beyond just this thing. She hasn't gotten past the death, but she has to do other stuff in order to kind of move through this. Same thing with Angus and and with Paul as well, or, or Hunnam as we were going to call him, whatever. But the fact is we have this trio of characters that really put us as an audience in a position to connect to in different ways. It's not that they're all dealing with the same stuff, but they're all connected by the same thing. They're all holdovers. They're all stuck in the school because of a choice that was made by one person or by multiple people. And so Paul Hunnam is there because of one reason. Mary's there because of another reason. Angus is there for an entirely different reason and actually has an opportunity to get out, but doesn't. And they are left with the situation. And that situation allows them to almost unintentionally, because of one another, work through their stuff. Because by the beginning, by the end of the film, the choices that Hunnam makes are not choices that he would make at the very beginning. And I say that very much as a Captain Obvious statement, because that's what good storytelling is. Can we take a character like Paul and move him from beginning to end where he actually has this growth arc? Because he's sort of the central figure here. It's, he's really anchoring the, the story, but Angus and Mary bring with him and bring to the story a, a roundedness to all their struggles and how they work through. The fact that this is a Christmas movie, because it takes place at Christmas, although not focused on it, it turns the Christmas story on its head. This is not your typical Hallmark movie where things begin and begin with the conflict and end with the resolution, the clean bow and everything. It really is, as you've talked about offline, kind of spotlighting the darker side of Christmas. This idea that, oh, over a holiday, what's the focus? It's on being around people that love you and being around people that you love. And it, it's a story that is somewhat uncomfortable. And I think that's why it's appealing to me and you. Not that we want discomfort all the time, but I think it's because we want something different. Like when we talk about our big blockbuster superhero movies, when we don't get stakes, when we get a character that's killed off, but then is retconned through a multiverse, it bothers us because there aren't any serious implications here. From the very beginning, this holiday season, which by default puts us in a position to say, oh, okay, we're going to center around the holiday. We're going to center around um, what's going to be happening, Christmas trees and everything. Those things really become sort of eyesores to the characters. And I, I like the fact that the movie doesn't take place on Christmas or it doesn't lead up to Christmas, but that it deals with this long holiday season, this two-week break where three people are alone in their, in their feelings. They're alone in their crap. And they have to deal with them. Like for Hunnam, he's cool with it. He's like, I've got my books. I'm good to go. 
for Mary, she's like, I miss my son who was killed, but I've got to just push through. And Angus is like, I just want to go to St. Kitts. And now I can't, so my break is going to be crappy. So for you, when you when you look at a movie like this, what kind of things do you see pulled, this movie pulled as far as like how Christmas, the, the season itself, uh, the realistic side of the the loneliness and things like that, how did that kind of connect with you? Oh man, I thought that this was just a really interesting observational way to like take a look at different types of things that can cause people to experience the holidays in a way that is not the way that they're presented to us through media and everything else that we do. I mean, I just put up my Christmas tree this week, Patrick. I know some people will think I'm absolutely crazy. Like, oh, what about Thanksgiving? I'm sorry. It's like a meal. Okay. A meal. Well, a pause. I'll turn off the lights for Thanksgiving. You happy? Oh, Patrick's got a Christmas tree up too, people. Look at this. We are starting the revolution. Okay. For me, October 30, uh, 31st at midnight or whatever, I guess November 1st, boom, Christmas. I, I got to maximize my amount of time because it brings me joy. Anyway, my point being, there are people out there that that same joy, if you are not happy, if you're depressed, if you are in a place you don't want to be, it can just really elevate that by everyone around you having their own happiness elevated. So the happier people get, if you're sad, you're going to kind of, I think, inversely feel sadder. And this movie explores that because what we have here is we have these people that they don't have anyone else for various reasons. Angus has been forgotten by his mom and her step, her step husband. No, that's not a thing her new husband, his stepfather. And I mean, I, I can't even fathom, Patrick, what that would feel like to be told you have to stay there over the Christmas break while we go off on our honeymoon. That That's just, that's a terrible, terrible thing to tell a child. You have Mr. Hunnam, who clearly has this past that we don't learn about for most of the film, but he doesn't have anybody. He's been pushing people away his entire life. He's a loner on purpose. And then you have Mary, who is still struggling with the loss of her son uh, to the war and is just the brightest soul who still tries to bring joy to everyone around her, but she carries this internal grief. And it's just a great reminder, man, that you don't necessarily know what people are going through, but that this is the time of year that we tend to not be careful enough when we just act overly joyful around each other. And I think that what I got out of this is that Christmas can be a real sour time. And for me, it makes me want to be more aware of the mental health and the state of being of my loved ones versus assuming and just expecting everyone to be in the same joyful spirit that I am because that's not reality. And maybe the best thing about Christmas is having a chance to connect with someone that needs it even more than they do the rest of the year, which is what we see happen here. Yeah, and it's it's not by choice. Like that's the thing that makes it really interesting is that you have three people that are forced into this as we mentioned before 
and they they make the best of it, but not because they want to, but because they have to. And what each character brings to the table, it it's not a, a Tetris kind of board here where they just fit perfectly. Sometimes you it's it's a puzzle piece. So I was thinking about Mary, who has her own place, coincidentally. Like you have of all the places, I find it interesting that because of like even the even the holdover thing, it feels like everyone that is held over is forgotten. They shut down everything but the infirmary. Like the the dorms are shut down, there's no heat, the faculty area shut. It's 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 as if the school has said, Yeah, sorry, you're an inconvenience. We'll give you the bare minimum. And there's specifically say that. They're trying to save money. They're trying to save money. Yeah. So it it becomes almost an eyesore for these what's who start out as like six or seven individuals and now down to three. But you see someone like Mary who has her own place and it's it's cool to see how loneliness brings people together to sort of get past their own stuff or at least be okay with dealing with their own stuff in the midst of others. So to tack on to what you were saying about being conscious of what other people might be dealing with. When when we go on break for with our family, with my family, um, my wife and son, they're homeschooled now, but even in the past, they would have two weeks for Christmas and New Year's. My company um, graciously shuts down between Christmas and New Year's, so everybody gets those five days off. But I consciously, because I know who I am, I consciously make a list of things to do to keep myself busy because I don't like not having something to do. I don't like feeling unproductive. I can be by myself, but if I'm just sitting around doing nothing or I don't feel purposeful, I feel like I've wasted time. And I think some of it has to do with the fact that that is due to my depression. This is how I deal with seasonal affect. This is how I deal with the cold winters, the long times when I don't have purpose. And two weeks is a long time. That's what I loved about this movie was that, or one of the things I loved about the movie was the fact that it takes place over two weeks. It's not just catapulting at Christmas. It's not just about, all right, we're going to lead all the way up to December 25th and how do they deal with the holidays and they're being lonely? No, it's about isolation for two weeks, not having the ability to do much. And I love that the the back end of this story deals with them going to Boston. And it's not just them getting out, but it's about them sort of breaking the rules. It's about them needing to do stuff for each other by taking this little adventure, this little field trip. I would probably feel a lot like like Angus being holed up, not just with 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 uh, with Hunnam, but just not having anything to do. I kind of appreciate the fact that Hunnam set this sort of rhythm and motion of like, all right, you're still going to have your study. You're still going to do this. Although it's kind of like ridiculous what he does because he tries to- It's not to, kind of ridiculous. It it's very ridiculous. But I, but I admired the reasons why. He, he, need, he recognizes more so that he needs that structure and he needs that purpose just as much as he feels like the kids do. When in actuality, they need to just run around and- get into a little bit of trouble, you know, or do, or do whatever. So I think watching this, 
I can appreciate the fact that while it is set at Christmas, it uses those moments to show the 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 bad side or the darker stuff. So I think what's one of my favorite scenes, one of my favorite sections is at um is at the Christmas Eve party where the these three individuals walk into like all this hoopla and everybody's having a great time. By the way, I've never been to a Christmas Eve party. Like Christmas Eve has always been sort of blocked off from my family. Yeah, it's family. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, I've been to like church services, but it's, other than that, but yeah, like, know, I'm not, I'm not hanging out with my coworkers and friends and whatever. You no, know, it's very strange on Christmas Eve. Like I'm like, that's like the December 20th party. <laughs> Terrible <laughs> time to find out the girl you like has a fiance or boyfriend or whatever too. Again and again, <laughs> yes. All three of these individuals had like these are are sitting in this glass, this glass like snow globe of a fantasy, like all this sparkle, color, everything. And I love the color palette, how it contrasts between school, cold, grays, uh, all these, those types of things. And then you contrast that with this Christmas party, which is on the surface full of joy and happiness and Christmas music. And these three come in and they have to deal with their crap and they deal with their crap. So you've got Hunnam who potentially with all of his smelling that he that he apparently has is going to potentially ask this girl out, come to find out she has a boyfriend. You've got Mary who comes in and basically self-proclaims that she's taken over the music and she switches it over to music that her son likes. And she sort of has a mental breakdown. That scene in the kitchen is phenomenal because it's almost like this sort of communal intervention. Like it's about her but it also brings out the crux of Angus's issues. Like he wants to stay because this girl's into him and I kind of want it, want it for him. I'm like, you go boy, you know, you've, you've, de- you deserve this. You spent seven days with this teacher and in isolation with these adults, you need to have some Christmas Eve fun. But this is where um, Paul tells him, he makes that comment about his dad. He's like, I don't have a dad. Now, I don't remember what specifically the line was in the trailer, but I don't know if he says my dad's dead. He says he's dead. Okay. At this point, at this point, he tells them he's dead and gets, and it's actually when Mary sort of chastises Paul for giving Angus crap because she's under the impression that his dad is dead, yes. which is a very bad, awkward situation when you look back on it. I mean, it's realistic because these are the lies we tell. But he's basically getting her as an ally yep. based on a lie. Right. Even though we understand why the lie was told later on. Absolutely. So I think that whole sequence and how it plays out is such an ironic backdrop for what's dealt with. But it's the reality of the holiday season. You know, my therapist, he would tell me that you have the big four coming up. You've got Thanksgiving for those who are dealing with a lot of depression and, and, and loneliness. Thanksgiving is a reminder of what you what you you're not thankful for. You're not thankful for anything. You know what do I have to be thankful for? Christmas is a reminder of the things that you want but you can't get. And then you have the New Year. Oh great! I hope this year doesn't suck as much as the last year did. I hope I don't fail as much as I did. And then finally um, Valentine's Day, a reminder that nobody loves me. That kind of thing. And he he says it in very you know general terms, but it's this four to five month period where those who are dealing with that kind of stuff, depression, loneliness, and isolation, that stuff just gets so amplified. 
And ironically, it's it it comes at the stages of when people around you feel like they're completely happy. And so I wonder, like when I walk through that scene of all those folks having a good time, how many of them are really dealing with stuff as well? How many of them are putting on a show, drinking a glass and trying to kind of drink their tears away? But what we see that are these three people, and we get this magnifying glass throughout the movie of what you alluded to, folks that are in our lives that we really hesitate or at least maybe unintentionally ignore the fact that there could be things going on. And I think the movie asks me to consider those around me, consider what I say, consider not my own happiness necessarily, or to sacrifice that. I don't think the movie is saying, hey, you should be depressed with all these people because everybody is sad. No, I think legitimately the holidays amplify the things that are both good and bad. And I think we just have to be aware of that. I think that's what the story is trying to tell us. Look, there's an amplification of emotion and the things that are manageable throughout the year get really, really focused in on. And these three individuals sort of take that on symbolically for the people that could exist in our lives. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect. That's a great way to put it. And that's, that's the power and beauty of movies is that we can watch this and experience the entirety of an arc of learning that people are dealing with issues, seeing them struggle with them, but also seeing the ways in which people can help each other and can be sacrificial and and can take the time to find a bond even in the most unlikely of situations where there is hope. As I said, you can come out of this better than you were before with a different outlook on life and you didn't have to go through it in your real life. So then maybe you experience someone in your real life who's struggling I'm not saying that you necessarily are going to take them and whisk them off to the nearest big city for a, you know, crazy weekday of fun, but you know, you should hopefully be more aware of it. And you know, there are things that they do in this film that I think are great lessons as our buddy Don Shanahan at every movie has a lesson could point out ways that we could in real life utilize time with people in our own circles to help them through a tough time if yeah. they're struggling with something like Christmas, like the way that they have their own little holiday party. Absolutely. Like, I think it's it's really sweet. It is. And throughout these two weeks, you have this fast track of relationships that are built in terms of almost this miniature family where Hunnam takes on, again, I use the word unintentional as my through word, as a father figure. He is a disciplinarian. He cares about, I won't say at the beginning, the well-being of his students, but really more about the the ethics of being a teacher. There's a great moment in, I think it's early on the in the movie, where we find out that he actually failed a student who was a legend, who was a, or a legacy, I think is the word, at this school. His dad's a politician. And he said, and these are my words, he couldn't in good conscience pass a kid give him a C plus so that he could go on to Harvard. And it got me wondering <laughs> the, the nuance of that. Is it ethically wrong to do that? Absolutely. If the kid didn't earn the grade, 
then you should not give him a grade he didn't deserve. At the same time, I also know that I made terrible grades at some point in my education, and it didn't necessarily affect my path moving forward. But I do wonder if there are times where we fudge a little bit, which is what happens later on. We lie. We have to kind of pivot a little bit, depending on the circumstance, in order to move us through to a better place. And we've had this conversation. I think it was on our episode of um, um, Don't Hurt My Feelings or You Hurt My Feelings, where we talk about when is it okay to lie to your spouse? When is it okay to to keep things that are potentially going to hurt someone for unnecessary reasons. And I think this sort of plays into that, but I like that we get the motivation behind why he is the way he is, that he was hurt. Like he was accused wrongly of cheating and was kicked out of Harvard. And now he's sort of going the opposite route of like, I'm not going to allow any kid to do that on my watch. You're not going to cheat and I'm not going to cheat for you. But this, this disciplinarian, as he softens, he takes on this fantastic father figure role for Angus, but he never says that. Like he, he is without being that. And I like that the story never says he was like a father to me the last two weeks. No, he wasn't, but he had fatherly characteristics in that he, he felt frustrated. <laughs> he, yeah, the, the whole chase sequence before Angus break, or, uh, dislocates his shoulder is something that I have felt with oh. my kid. So much fun. It's, it's fantastic. I, I love I, it. I love, I, I quick note, but like, the, again, like details of like the type of filmmaking things that, that really elevate movies into that top tier for me. But this sequence and the way that it sort of, it ends so abruptly, like it's perfectly shot because he just, he goes and he leaps and then it's just, like there's no, it's not overly dramatized with this, kind of sweeping score or this, you know, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how it would be done differently. I've just, I specifically noted that it felt so natural and realistic to the way that an injury would actually occur. Like you would do something and then it would happen and you would immediately, there wouldn't be this pause of, you know, uh, uh, something happening. You would just, it would happen and you would scream and it would be chaotic from that point forward. And I, I just thought, I just really appreciated the whole way that that, sequence was shot. Well, I, I would say in general, from a technical standpoint, the whole thing and the, the whole the whole movie feels very analog. Obviously, it's the 1970s. And as we mentioned before, that a lot of the stuff was was by design, but it grounds these characters. It doesn't feel like a Wes Anderson movie where it feels whimsical and like kind of weird and quirky. It feels like we've kind of shot a sort of documentary of two weeks of these three individuals. And so when you see Hunnam, the way that he progresses as a character from, like, I think the moment for me was when he agrees to take them to Boston, because I think not only does he need the break, but he also sees the fact that Angus is asking, Angus needs this, and he's starting to realize, okay, I can, I can at least extend this to him. I'm very hesitant. He's still a wild child, but this is what's going to happen. And and their time in in Boston was fantastic. I love the the outdoor bookshop. Great, that's a great set, by the way. I love that. 
And I think it's real. I think I read in the trivia that all the sets were practical. None of them were like created. They weren't built. So this outdoor book uh, bookstore, I would love to go there. If that's something that actually exists or existed, I would love to see that in real life. But I, I, I loved seeing how he and Angus connected. And when they finally sort of really connected was after the, um, after the ice skating sequence where he's confronted, Hunnam's confronted, and he has to lie. And Angus throws in that whole, oh, yeah, what about your book about, I think it's like clocks or something like that. Or, and he has to name, you know, come up with a quick title. But something that, that Hunnam says that stood, stood out to me was he was explaining why he lied. And he said, that guy didn't deserve to hear my story. And he said to, I think he says to Angus, never let someone take your story from you or something to that effect. I wish I was, I had my note because it was a fantastic line, but I loved it because he was saying, this is why I am the way I am. And I'm unapologetic about it. But not only that, I'm giving that to you. You need to know that. So that to me is like the first moment of real like, deliberate mentorship, not teaching, but being a mentor. And and I think that really opened up the door for Angus to go see his dad and for, for Hunnam to, to come with him. And it, it's just, it, it's beautifully done. And I loved watching their relationship grow that way. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, you know, it starts early on when Angus protects Hunnam from getting in trouble over the arm, right? When he when he hurts himself. There's like a a mutual saving of each other there where I believe Hunnam helps Angus get out of the fact that Angus doesn't want an insurance claim filed because he knows it's going to get back to his parents and he's so worried that he's going to get sent to military school because he's failed out of so many. And yet Hunnam, for as hard as he is, Part of why he acts the way he does toward Angus is because Angus is the one with potential in the school. He's the one that Hunnam knows has something. He's the smart guy. And Hunnam wants to draw that out of him. But even when Angus is kind of not realizing that potential, he's unwilling to give up on him because he just he knows there's something deeper there. Uh, even if it's almost subconscious, you know, I think it, it, he's he pokes the bear because he, like most good teachers, I think even though his methods are outdated and clearly not effective at, anymore, his intentions are incredibly admirable as a, as an educator, uh, and I appreciate that, and I think that that helps build into this relationship. I think Angus knows that. So there's this like quiet understanding and respect for each other. And then as they slowly have these experiences where they stick up for one another and then they fight and they bicker, it's building on this relationship to the point where they can eventually fully trust each other with this, this truth that is in both of their lives that they've kept hidden because it hurts them both so much. What about um, Mary? I think you mentioned before yeah. she is a fantastic character. I think she has some of the <laughs> the best lines. I love watching her and Hunnam in front of the television when she is um, when she's introducing him to the newlywed game. It's so great. Uh -huh. <laughs> she's like, 
They're she's getting divorced. awesome. I love her accent. I love the way that she just yep. talks. She's just so nonchalant about everything. So so blunt. And then she has that fantastic breakdown moment where she is just letting loose. I think that scene, another reason that scene works for me in at the Christmas party is that she feels comfortable enough to be vulnerable with the the three of them. Well, the two of them. And then I think there's the the janitor who's the fourth. He comes in a couple of times. But I like her role as a as a mother figure for Angus. Like it's almost there are times when it feels like she and Hunnam are bickering a little bit. Like she sees Angus needing to go down this path and Hunnam's like, no, he needs to do this. And I think for her, it was therapeutic for her to kind of imprint herself onto him, to take care of him, to cook for him. But she was so unassuming about it. It wasn't like she ever, none of these characters ever say what we feel like they're feeling. And I think that's what makes them authentic. But her especially where when he says, thanks, Mary, this is a great meal. And she's like, sure. Yeah. And she just kind of takes that drag of that cigarette. But even later on, watching her deal with her grief, I didn't realize, I think I was correct in assuming that the house she goes back to is her sister's, right? It's her sister's. And her sister, I believe, is preparing to have a baby. Yes. And so there's some depression that comes along with that. Again, kind of tying into the same theme of Christmas and people in your life experiencing joy for situations that you personally have this deep depression around in your own life. Absolutely. And I think her way of dealing with that by taking this box of her son's baby things and putting it in the drawer as a way to either give it away. My wife dealt with that a little bit this past weekend, we were cleaning out the garage and we have stacks and stacks of our son's baby clothes. And she got emotional as we were going through it. And I asked her, what are we doing with these? She says, well, I guess we're giving them away to Goodwill. And I said, well, one of my coworkers just had a baby. It's a, it's a boy. Can we send it to him? And she's like, yeah. And so I think for her, that was a little bit therapeutic to say, okay, these things can live on in someone else. You're not just going to some random place. And I think we see that with Mary, her putting his clothes, his booties and all those things in these drawers of this nursery that's being prepared for this child that hasn't been born yet was really beautiful. But I like seeing how that motherly instinct plays in her relationship with Angus as well. Yeah. And I like that she gets a little bit of a romance too with, I believe his name is Danny, maybe? Is Danny? I think so. His name? Danny. Yeah. Okay. He's the janitor. Yep. They just, man, they're so cute together. The way that he kind of is protective of her and always happy to praise her cooking and her way of handling situations. They just seem like such an adorable, perfect situation for people to find each other. You know, and that's the other thing is like these are these are found family all around, as you mentioned, the kind of analog to a real family. And one of the things that I know we we grow up with is this idea that family is what matters the most, like blood family. A lot of people grow up with that ingrained in them, right? And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, you know, I've come to really separate away from that belief. There are definitely people in my blood family that I love and would 
make sacrifices for and and such but there are people that i have found family that it's it's kind of like love to me love is a choice love is an action it's not a word and it's the same to me with family family are the people that are there for you that do speak up that do support one another and it's not ones that don't do those things but you're still an uncle, so I'm just going to continue to break my back for you no matter what, even though it's not reciprocated. I really don't believe that. I think this is a good example of what found family is and how that shows up in our real everyday lives. To quote the uh, the the uh, esteemed Lego movie, you know, friends of the family that you choose. So I, I think there there's you go. something to be said there. But you're right, and, and Angus being sort of not really at the center of the story, but the center of his family, he comes across as someone who has lost his dad, and that's not an untrue statement even by the end of the film. But he's a person who has felt abandoned, who has been abandoned. That phone call made me so mad that his mom was like, we've we've been married you know, for six months and we haven't had a real honeymoon. He's like, you had all summer, like you've had six months. She's like, but things come up. And I'm thinking like you, I'm thinking, or like, like Angus, I'm like, then do it next summer. You can, you know, and she's like, well, we can do it over spring break. I fell for him. I was like, yeah, this, this is not okay. And the fact that they were gone when he had the opportunity to get permission to go skiing with the rest of the boys, it was just, Definitely needed because obviously the growth that comes after that is is fantastic, but I felt frustrated for him. Not that he got to, not that he had FOMO, not that he was unable to experience these things that these other kids did, but the fact that he was felt like discarded, like he he was treated as someone who was a burden to his mom. And so when we get to the end of the film, after he's visited his dad and. Apparently his dad has taken this snow globe and tried to bludgeon one of the orderlies with it that's caused some issues. I don't feel sorry for for her. I don't. And I love how Hunnam confronts her and says, I'm sorry that you're dealing with this. I'm sorry that your life is a little bit harder now. But is it worth sacrificing the life of your kid and his future? And when he make when he says that and then makes a choice to end his career at Barton, it was the most beautiful sort of passing on of of mentorship, of endorsement. And it it really sort of brought home that concept that at some point I have to stop living for myself as an individual and continue to pour into the life of someone who is younger than me. If whether it's my son or whether it's one of the soccer players. It can't be about me at some point. And so watching how Angus received that without getting all the details and didn't make a huge deal like, you can't do this, you can't do this, but instead said thank you and went forward with his life. You knew that he was grateful, but it wasn't so melodramatic that it felt like it was cheapened. Like he knew that Hunnam had to make the choice that he made he accepted that with gratitude, and now he's not going to waste. I I feel like he's not going to waste that choice that was made for him on his future. I agree. That's I think that's the key. Like you said, it's not melodramatic and it's not heightened to unrealistic, you know, just 
depiction of it. It's very, very relatable because most people would just accept that because he doesn't want to go to military school. And, and it does. It infuriates me the way that his mom and her stephusband, her, I said it again, her st- goodness gracious, there's no such thing as a stephusband, and her new husband handle it because, yes, he made a choice that ultimately was, you know, in a way that he was not supposed to do. He was not supposed to go visit his father. There were reasons, very good reasons for that. But by not allowing him to visit him in a safe and secure way, and by not giving him the parental love that they needed to, in lieu of having already lost one parent, essentially out of his life, he was pushed into seeking that out. And so she's really, in essence, responsible for the way that that whole scenario plays out. It's not on him. He's a 17-year-old kid who doesn't have a dad. And his mom is throwing him away. What is he supposed to do? My goodness, like, of course he's going to make that decision. And I don't blame him for it one bit. And does it result in an un dangerous situation from the father probably yeah but that's something that the mother i wish and and my ultimately hope would be that off screen you know that she learns from this and and it's sad because it it probably isn't going to happen but you just have to hope that in lieu of that relationship not being what it needs to be in his life that angus has learned the found family can replace that. Yeah. Um, there's go a, forward. There's a bit of, I guess it's, I, I guess we call it not irony, but a bookended set of opposites. Maybe it's a paradox. I don't know what, what the concept is, but there's a contrast. There it is. There's a contrast between his mom and her relationship with her new husband and Hunnam in terms of how they look at his value. When he makes that phone call to her at the beginning of the movie and she provides every excuse why he needs to stay there, it's never about him. It's always about her. I need this. We just got married. We haven't had the time. And it sounds ridiculous from an audience standpoint. Like, really? You've been married six months. One, you could have done this. Two, you can wait a little bit longer. Your son is begging you to pick him up and take him home. Then we get to the end where she is trying to blame her son for doing what he did when in actuality, as you mentioned, it's her fault because she never allowed that access to her husband. And so when I look at this, the the point I was getting to is the fact that everything that she was doing from that moment, being unavailable for that phone call, making herself available only when things got inconvenient for her. You contrast that to Hunnam, who is virtually giving up a piece of himself for the sake of Angus's future. She's selfish. She, he is selfless. When you talk about two parental figures, one is still living for her own needs. The other one has chosen to give up his needs for the sake of this surrogate son 
that he has adopted over these last two weeks. And if that was the point, it's a point beautifully made by this creative team of a writer, director, and it it just really brings home the fact that while it's okay to be able to have your life and to have your needs met, when someone comes into your life, if they disrupt your life in a way, when you recognize that part of your role is to influence them in some way, shape, or form, either that, you know, the, the only example I can think of is when I have this cohesion of a, of a soccer team and this one kid comes in who doesn't know how to play at all, like he's going to mess it up. Well, no, he's coming in. Maybe there's some stuff going on at home that his mom has said, here, do this. Maybe I can provide something beyond just how to get a good first touch or how to create space in a 1v1. And I think that's what's on display here where these three individuals look at one another and they have by accident or by design put themselves in a position to influence one another for the better. And I think that's a really cool thing, this disruption of relationships that actually lead to a better outcome. Because if we look back, if if um, he hadn't, um, had, Paul had not taken this role, if he hadn't been with the holdovers, then would Angus had gone through everything? I mean, you can speculate all we want, but the fact is for two weeks, there was this kind of magic, this Christmas magic, this holiday magic that brought these three individuals together and they came out the other side different. And I, well, I think one of my favorite shots in the entire movie is when Hunnam goes into the uh, the dean's office or the, the headmaster's office and Angus is there. Mary comes up. She sits down. They don't say anything. And she just puts her hand over in the middle for him to hold. And that's all. There's no words. There's nothing. And it's like, man, something has changed for the better. And whatever happens next, I have to believe if I think about life after movie stories that they're going to stay in touch that Hunnam's going to come back and visit or that Angus is going to find him in Greece somewhere and make some ancient porn joke and make him laugh <laughs> or that they're going to meet up with Mary in Boston. And, and I just, I feel like there's a better life happening after this, even though there's a disruption and someone <laughs> he, lost their job. Yeah. I mean, he just doesn't have to go through life alone is what it really boils down to. You know, at the end of the day, Hunnam's leaving, whether he comes back or not, Mary will still be there. So I think that's part of the implication in that scene is that Angus knows he has Mary. But I think it's more even than that, just about that understanding that he has now had his eyes opened to the fact that it's okay to trust someone and to let someone in. And he won't be as likely to hoard all of those feelings inside and let them eat him up and tear him apart going forward. That's that's my reading of it. And and I agree with you. I think in my perfect movie sequel that doesn't exist world, Hunnam and he actually stay in touch. And it wouldn't shock me one bit. And that would be really, really cool. But even if they don't, like great any great mentors we've had in our lives, I think it's probably the case for many of us where 
I couldn't tell you how many times I've spoken to someone in the last 20 or 30 years, but I can specifically pinpoint a moment or two when someone had a massive impact on the direction of my life. Like I would be willing to bet that our old youth pastor, Keith, probably was a person like that for you. I don't know how often you talk to him or how often you've ever talked to him. I have a youth pastor from my childhood named Greg, who was a family friend for years. I haven't actually spoken to this man since I've been an adult that I can remember. But boy, I can tell you when I was 15, 16, and 17, this person left a mark on my life that I will never forget. And to me, that's what Hunnam is doing here. Uh, part of, that's why I love this movie. I just, I just love it so much. Yeah. It's like a warm hug, man. It mm-hmm. really, it really is. It just leaves you feeling hopeful and happy. And it's not got any kind of unnecessary gratuitousness of, of any sorts. Um, it, it's just, it's just delightful. Yeah. It's a uh, great Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff, man. Well, that's it for me. Um, one, one, one quick thought is, um, I mentioned this to you offline, but I wanted to let our listeners know that if you haven't already guessed, 2023 is the year of great soundtracks. I think half the movies we've covered have phenomenal music attached to them, whether it's a score or soundtrack between this, Flora and Son, um, even uh, at Nyad. The last several, I've just noticed that the soundtracks are killer. Lots of great needle drops. Lots of great uh, instrumental stuff going on here. The instrumentals in, in this movie are great. I was like, oh, yeah. And if we're talking about capturing the 70s without being like a 70s movie, this is such a great capture. This is such a great naturalistic capture of what the 70s were like in terms of just what they look like. When I think about 70s Boston, it's it, I would try to notice things that felt a little out of place in terms of like, did they, oh, I think I see a car that's from 19, you know, from 2000, whatever. But no, it, it's really, really good. This one was no exception, but I, I love, love the soundtrack on this one. And it's uh, it's one that I'll probably queue up here in a couple of days to have on in the background. It's good stuff. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of Feel and Film. Next week, we will be tackling Gran Turismo. It was in theaters. We missed it, but I'm excited to actually check it out and really just get into this based on true story with uh, David Harbour and company. So looking forward to that conversation, Aaron, and uh, have a good week, everyone. Watch movies, enjoy them, and come back and listen. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.